Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you are listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Sandra Beasley, the author of Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, Tales from an Allergic Life, recently published in paperback by Broadway. And uh, welcome, Sandra. Thanks. It's nice to be here today. So a little bit about this book. It, I mean, a big chunk of it is memoir, of course, but it's also really sort of stepping away from the memoir or using the memoir as a launching pad, I should say, to really talk about food allergies as a as a cultural and as a social issue and a scientific issue uh, affecting a lot of people in America today. Right. Well, you know, people will sometimes ask, how long did you take to research this book? And I say, well, on some level, I've been researching it for 30 plus years because it is a memoir and I have uh, so many experiences with food allergies, uh, both good and bad. But but the on the other hand, when I committed to writing the book, I knew it was so important to tell stories beyond my own. And that meant really educating myself in a more formal way of terms and ideas that I'd been using casually for years to understand what was going on in the body, uh, doing interviews, thinking about peanut allergies, which is not an allergy of mine, but for many people is synonymous with the severity of food allergies, and even flying to New Orleans to attend a uh, a conference of um, asthma experts, immunology experts, and allergy experts, at which it was very surreal to go from usually being the person in the room most authoritative on allergy to being the, the rube, you know, being surrounded by people who, who understood in that highly technical sense what I had only felt and experienced. And you mentioned just now that you are not allergic to peanuts, um, but let's run through for, for the listeners to understand, you know, the extent of, of the issues that you've been dealing with personally in your life. Um, what are the things that you are allergic to? Oh, dairy, uh, not only cow's milk, but goat's milk, eggs, beef, shrimp, uh, mangoes, pistachios, cashews, macadamia nuts, uh, honeydew, cantaloupe, swordfish, mustard, and about two weeks ago I found out that I was allergic to passion fruit thanks to a uh, cherry blossom themed cocktail that I had in D.C. And um, one of the things that you write about is that with, with food allergies you don't find out at once that you're allergic. It, it can take like two or three tastings and the first one or two can be perfectly safe or, or no reaction. And then you're like, oh, okay, I can eat this. And then that third one is, is going to get you. Right. I mean, the body has to recognize the food protein first in order to uh, treat it as an enemy. And so a lot of times when parents are testing kids with new foods, they, they think, oh, well, it was fine with the spoonful of, of whatever. We're in the clear. But unfortunately, the reality is it's the next spoonful that's going to be the problem. Um, and, you know, the, the immune system is a very inexact thing. There's people experience what's called oral allergy syndrome, where they think they're allergic to fruits. But what's actually happening is the body is mistaking those uh, fruit proteins for ragweed, for birch pollen, for alder pollen. So it's almost like having a hay fever of the mouth of sorts. So yeah, you, you, I've, I've, my knowledge of what my allergies are and how they work has expanded with every passing year and will probably continue to change because our, our systems change with time. And this is something that yeah has affected the way you live your life on a very, pretty much on an atomic level really, it seems like, from the time that you were a small child. Well, food isn't just sustenance. It's a way that we bond. And so if you think of all of the times in childhood, all of the celebratory events, all of the school, you know, 
organized things. I mean, e even the little things like every month I would win the contest for reading the most number of books in my class, and my reward was a free personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. And, you know, in four years of elementary school, nobody ever thought to say, maybe the girl who's allergic to pizza, that's not the best reward. I mean, it's it, it gets used, and food gets used in all of these different ways. And so, yeah, it's, uh, and even now as a, as a grown-up, um, things like traveling on my own, things like dating, things like p possibly thinking about having my own children or babysitting my friends' small kids, it's all affected by food. Right, and there's some sections in here where you talk about um, dating and relationships where it's like, I mean, you can't even spontaneously kiss your boyfriend on the off chance that he's had a glass of milk or, or even some chocolate. Well, ideally you end up with somebody who has a lifestyle where that, that's not quite as much of an issue. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I tell one story. I, I was in one long distance relationship where I had literally just driven three hours so excited to see the guy. And I got there a little earlier than he expected. And I ran in and gave him this big, deep kiss without realizing he just had the way shake that he has after all of his workout routines. So I went from, you know, being so excited to see him to being snuffling, wheezing, bleary-eyed, uh, and very unromantic for the rest of the evening. It's tough. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, the reactions that you have are pretty intense, hardcore reactions. You know, and it doesn't take a lot of contact to set them off. Well, you know, I, overall I'd like to think that the tone of the book is light in a lot mm -hmm. of ways because I do recognize the absurdities with which um, food allergies shape how we have to kind of, you know, play, play frogger in the game of life. But at the same time, uh, the hard reality is I have serious medical incidents at least once or twice a year. I mean, I, I almost die. I almost die a lot more than most people. And you have a sense of your mortality that shifts, and I'd like... On the upside, maybe it's part of what made me a poet before I decided to become a memoirist was uh, that kind of darker awareness of that the body is our greatest ally, but sometimes our greatest enemy. And, you know, there's a section towards the end of the book, uh, speaking of the, the fact that you almost die once or twice a year, you know, you talk about the EpiPen phenomenon, which is where it's like a lot of people in your condition with your, your, your allergies you know, you're used to carrying one or two EpiPens on your person at all times. And yet, when push comes to shove, it almost never gets used. I mean, you know, I'm sure that it, do it does get used, but a lot of times you will, will, you know, will make the conscious choice to, you know, go with the Benadryl rather than with the EpiPen. And, and you, you explain why that is in, a, in the book, and I'd love to well, and that's that where I think it's important to emphasize that my book is a memoir. It's not mm -hmm. a manual of food allergies. Mm -hmm. And and I am part of a generation, I mean, that I have had many conversations where people commiserate, yeah, I carry the EpiPen, I have these severe reactions, but I don't use it. And the thing is, it's pretty consistent of a generation that even when we were younger and went to the hospital, the doctors wouldn't use epinephrine. They would give us Benadryl and they'd wait. And obviously the medical understanding has come a long way since then. And now, now they understand that Benadryl, unfortunately, in many situations, really only masks the reaction that's still going on. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether this generation of kids who've had parents who were much more aggressive in using the EpiPen then go on to use it themselves as adults. I, I certainly, in hindsight, remember plenty of allergic reactions where I wish I'd taken that tact, but it's tough. It, when you 
set over the first in a series of dominoes that you know is going to lead to a hospital stay and maybe an ER copay and maybe a little trouble with your health insurance the next time around because they don't like seeing that you have these records of admissions. Um, we're human. We're flawed. And sometimes you, uh, you choose to try to wait it out. But, you know, the thing that I've come to realize, especially in these past few years and touring with this book, is maybe I was in denial about the burden that that placed on those around me. I think I thought that I was being less of a burden on them by waiting it out because they wouldn't have to be sitting in a hospital lobby waiting to see what happened. But I realize now that, you know, at least then they would know that I'm under the care of a doctor, whereas it, in a way I'm inadvertently asking them to be my doctor, and that's not fair. Yeah, the memoir talks a lot about how your family sort of comes together around in a supportive way around this issue. The ways that your you know your mother and your father in particular are, are looking out for you growing up, um, dealing with this as another and a much more intensive sort of aspect of of the kind of protectionist that every parent has towards their children. Well. No parent is excited when their daughter turns to them and say, says, guess what, I've decided to write a memoir. You know, but I felt fortunate because once they understood that the lens was going to be through food allergy, then it was something we could work with. Because the reality is, and this is true of a lot of families, medical crisis does bring out the best in those around you. Um, one of the things that I've had to think about, though, is, you know, my sister... Uh, I only have one sister. She's significantly younger. She has only a couple of allergies, and they're not anaphylactic grade at all. So I never really thought before about how scary it must have been for her. You know, you can have a kind of myopia as, as a sibling where you don't realize. It wasn't just that she might have had moments of being jealous because all of our meal choices revolved around my allergies. She probably also really worried about me. So... But you know, I, I think as a memoirist, you have to um, you have to be you have to make some tough decisions about how vulnerable to make the people around you on the page. Uh, it's certainly a problem, or not a problem, but a challenge with you know past loves and and family members. And nobody asks to be in the memoir, uh, so sometimes you have to make kind of tricky decisions on the fly. Mm -hmm. And when the when the memoir is done, or at least the, you know when the first draft is done. Do you have people who ask to be out of the memoir? <laughs> you know, there are there were some cases where if if it was a minor story where it was important how I was treated, but I didn't want to lay a lot of blame. Sometimes it's just a matter of not naming someone. I mean, there I write about one ex boyfriend who, in a particularly childish moment, we were having a fight, and uh, I thought we'd made up, but it was that kind of passive aggressive, not really made up way. And he stepped out of the room, had quite a bit of chocolate and came in and pantomimed what to anybody else would have been a typical, you know, make-up, make-out session, uh, and then made this joke, you know, oh, I guess you're not so allergic to chocolate after all. Mm -hmm. And I went running out of the room, and I just was covered. My whole collarbone was covered in hives. And that, to me, is an important story because it, it feeds at the very trust issue that is always hard moving forward in the world with these allergies. But... I recognize that for him, it's probably one of the moments of his life he's least proud of. It doesn't represent who he is as a person. So naming him, you know, would have just been unnecessary and kind of petty, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, that, that trust issue. I mean, obviously the trust is most intense and, you know, with those people who, with whom you are most intimate. But you, know, you write a lot and, 
not just from a personal perspective, but the, the cultural perspective takes on this a lot as well. The the sort of flip side of the trust is the skepticism that, uh, you know, I mean, he sort of refers to it in, in this very mocking way right now, but it's it's something that, in not and not always in a mocking way, sometimes in a, in a perfectly heartfelt sort of way that you, you and other food allergy sufferers uh, face a lot of skepticism on a day-to-day basis out in the world. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that the, the act of trust is most intense for the people I know best, but also for the people I know least. Because if you think about it, you know, these moments of, I mean, I'm I'm constantly on the road for readings for book tour, which means that I have a lot of meals out. And so a waiter who I didn't know three minutes ago, I am now essentially putting my hands into his or her life, and I have to rely that they're going to take, you know, that they're going to find me credible, uh, that they're going to faithfully communicate what my allergies are, you know, that we're going to be able to kind of work together, or else I I go to the hospital, you know, and, and that's um so that's the irony is that the people who are closest to me, yes, it's a big trust trust thing because my food allergies affect their lives, but then there's also this other category of people who. You know, an hour later, uh, they might not even remember my face or that we met, but in that moment, they're literally responsible for my life, in a sense. There's also a section in the book where, and I'm, I'm thinking back to, we had talked about EpiPens just a, a second ago, and it occurs to me that EpiPens in particular have, it seems like they've cropped up a lot in pop culture, in TV and movies, a lot, as a dramatic device. And there's a, a section where you write about a lot of the humor that pop culture displays towards food allergies, basically using them as a um, as a gimmick for you know as a gag. Uh, it's a callous humor. I yeah. mean, it's yeah, it's a, it can be a sight gag. Whether it's you know Will Smith's eyes swelled shut in Hitch as he as he you know roams the uh, aisles of the pharmacy and drinks enough Benadryl to make him swerve like a drunken sailor for the rest of the night. Uh, it's, you know, I, I mean, I think EpiPens do have a kind of shibboleth, a secret handshake quality. You know, uh, if somebody knows what one is, that they know what the realm of allergy is like. But I hate it when it's used as a plot device. You know, it's it, it's the same thing with asthma, which I also had had as a kid. You know, you, if you see, it's like Chekhov's rule about the gun. If you see an asthmatic and his or her inhaler at the beginning of the movie, you know at some critical point one is going to be separated from the other. Uh, same thing with EpiPens. You, if you... If somebody's uh, allergies is, you know, it's like Thomas and my girl, if it's made enough of a plot point that you know they carry an EpiPen, yeah, that kid's probably not going to fare well. You know, and, and that's that to me is just so, it's so glib. And uh, if it were a kid in a wheelchair, we wouldn't be making these jokes. But there's something about allergies maybe because they're not always as visual until someone's reacting. It, I think it's a real, I think it's really too bad. <laughs> You mentioned at the beginning that you had gone out and done a lot of research for this as well, and you talked about the conference that you went to. And I'm really interested in hearing about how you sort of in, integrated, you know, this intimate memoir voice that you use for, let's, I mean, we haven't done the percentages, but let's say about half the book is uh, intimate memoir. And then the other half is report, more reportive, um, journalistic, and talking about integrating those two components. Well, it's funny you. It's funny you use that. Um, the percentages, you know, I I always try to remind people I'm I'm the daughter of a visual artist, but I'm also the daughter of an army general, and so there is a kind of strategy. And so, for example, in the book, I found myself alternating where each chapter would have either 
two personal sections to one researched one or um, two research sections to one kind of personal anecdote driven. So but I felt that way I could ensure that the braiding had a good balance. Uh, but what I think is critical is you can incorporate highly technical or researched information as long as in the same voice that tells stories you record your response to the information as you learn it. I think A.J. Jacobs is an example of somebody who does that really well. When, when he was writing in the know-it-all, when he was writing about spending a year reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, you could hear him kind of responding to these encyclopedia entries in real time in a way that takes something that could have been dry and pedantic and brings it to life. So that, that for me, um, even going back, to, you know, going back to that, conference, there was a surreal moment where I was going down the escalator and the two doctors were talking about blood samples in front of me. Because for allergy testing, a lot of times it's getting access to blood exemplars of people allergic to soy, allergic to egg. Or, and they were talking about it like they were, uh, you know, trading chips. I've got, I've got four soy, but I sent it to Kentucky. If I can get it back, can you give me three, you know, milk? And, and, and I felt like leaning down to them from behind them on the escalator and tapping them on the shoulder and just being like, look, I'm your holy grail. We'll go off to the side. You can take all the blood you need, and let's just move this forward. But it's very surreal to be talked about that way. Um, I'm right here. I'm a living, breathing example of what you guys have devoted your lives to addressing, but, you know, but to be talked about in a very different form. <laughs> It seems to me that these issues of voice and uh, as well would also be really important to you as a poet. Um, that it, I mean, you have this sort of discipline in terms of being using language, you know, and, and figuring out like what it is that you want to accomplish as you're as you're writing something. Well, I like to think that in my poetry as well, I have an intense attention to the world around me. And so, you know, people often say, write what you know, and certainly many people associate contemporary poetry with a kind of solipsism or, or a, a lyric confessional, this is my life, these are my feelings. But for me, it was really, it's always really important to push beyond that to what am I literally seeing. So there's a ton of animals in my poems. That's because my daily walks take me through the National Zoo, where I live in D.C. And so on one hand, that is what I know, quote unquote, but it's also something beyond my own navel. Um, and I feel like that's, as a memoirist, you have to do that too. I, I People often, when they bring me memoirs, uh, it always starts out being a family story. And I try to push them to say, well, yes, but but a family doing what? You know, show, show also show me how to make a pie crust. Also show me how to tie a knot in a way that, you know, that docks a sailboat. Show me the things you guys actually did and the places you did them in, and not just the emotional dynamic. One of the things that comes across in Don't Kill the Birthday Girl is that, I mean, you're hardly fatalistic about your condition, but at the same time, you don't come across as sort of like living in expectation of, you know, the magic bullet that's going to clear this up once and for all. And well, you know, it's really unappealing for me to uh, have the option of reintroducing foods that I've spent a lifetime associating with itchy throat, swollen eyelids, projectile vomiting, uh, you know, or things that I've never developed a taste for. I really don't have much of a sweet tooth at all. So it's not like I would welcome, uh, you know, there's some great breakthroughs being made in oral immunotherapy, sublingual immunotherapy, some of the Chinese herbal treatments. But I try to say, I'm not looking to be quote unquote cured. What I would like to do is not worry about where minor uh, 
cross-contamination, minor exposures takes me out. You know, it's so frustrating to me to take every possible precaution, to bring all my own food, but to go to a wedding where because somebody else has been sloppy and I get a minor exposure to milk, I end up missing my friend's, you know, dance with her dad. And so that's the thing is, is for me, the treatments are less about reintroducing those foods into my diet and more about just making a general sense of security in how I navigate the world. Where do you go from here? I mean, I know that you're a poet, so you, you have that as a as a writing venue, but do you also see yourself writing more nonfiction? Definitely. I mean, I, I have uh, always been doing a little bit of freelancing alongside my poetry. I've written for the Washington Post magazine. Actually, one of the first times I wrote about my allergies in print was for a series called The XX Files. I wrote about a, a dinner party uh, where, uh, you know, that the dinner party where I discovered I was allergic to mangoes and the awkwardness of trying to cover what was going on, not wanting to be known as the allergy girl. Um, so I, I think personal essays, you know, will always be a part of what I'm writing. Uh, I wrote about music for the Oxford American. Move around a little bit. But, you know, one, one thing that I'd really like to think about going forward is no longer quietly excising uh, the food allergy dimension of my experience in a way that I did when I was younger. So if I write a travel piece and part of the travel experience was an allergic reaction, I'd like to be able to incorporate that or, you know, I'm not saying dwell on it, but at least be honest that that's part of my experience. So we'll see. There's a, there's always lots of possibilities. I may write about all this crazy travel I've been doing, all this being down south. I don't know yet. Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, I'm sure the internet has probably actually been a, a fairly big boon in terms of this, of provi uh, providing more information like travel guide -y sorts of things for people with food allergies. Yeah, and there are some good resources. I, I will say, um, I think sometimes, unfortunately, the, the food allergy advocacy community focuses too much on creating self-contained guides, where what I would like to see is that energy towards um, put towards mainstream awareness. So, for example... Uh, there's a there's a website and it's very well intentioned you know that aims to be a guide to how accommodating our restaurants in every city in terms of food allergies. But I would rather see them convince somebody like Yelp to make a category of you know in when somebody goes in on Yelp to comment on a restaurant in the same way that it says is this accessible to someone in a wheelchair yes no is this accommodating to food allergies? Yes, no. You know, I, I would rather see that awareness put into the mainstream than for somebody to first pick out a restaurant that they want to go to via one of those, you know, photos, uh, Rockwell, whatever, um, and then have to cross-reference it with the secondary food allergy-centric resource. Well, it sounds like uh, Don't Kill the Birthday Girl is a great step in that direction in terms of mainstreaming this condition with the rest of the world, and you tell the story really well, and look forward to seeing what stories you tell in the future. Thank you. This has been Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. We've been speaking with Sandra Beasley, the author of Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, published from Broadway. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for another Life Stories podcast coming soon.